Welcome back to the Caught Red Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Jesse Light. I'm Megan Light. We are just two dog lovers talking about true crime, horror movies, and most likely our dogs too. We are recording this Monday, October 2nd. If you've been following us on Instagram, we are doing a giveaway. We've teamed up with Pupnik Baskets for a spooky Halloween giveaway. And it was really all of their idea. They reached out to us, so thank you, Pupnik Baskets, for including us. They are a really cool small business that makes personalized charcuterie boards for dogs. Yep. They They're call so cute. it barkcuterie boards, right? They are out of Florida, and they've made a special Halloween-themed barcuterie board for this giveaway. Mowgli, what are you doing? Look at him. He's looking out the window. What do you see, buddy? Boo. And then we are throwing in a Caught Red Podcast shirt and a sticker in there. And then... Maybe something else if I find it yeah. to stow away in the box. I know they're including a, like a spooky dog toy. Oh, also, yeah, yeah. So. But y'all can go to our most recent post on Instagram or you can go to their Instagram page. They've got it pinned. And then just follow the instructions to be entered, and they'll announce the winner on Friday the 13th. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. It's for dog lovers and true crime fans. We know there's a lot of y'all out there, so spread the word about us. In other news, Megan brought home a kitten Sunday night. <laughs> I, I had no say in it. No, you never do. Mm -mm. His temporary name was Chicken. Chicken! And I'll let Megan tell you the story of how she catnapped him. So, one of the waitresses came up to me and was like, did you hear about the kitten? I was like, what kitten? <laughs> what kitten? Her eyes probably lit up. They most definitely did. She told me that, like, Tuesday or Wednesday night, whichever night that she worked, they saw the kitten. Were they feeding them that night, too? or Probably. I'm sure yeah, they put, put scraps out. Couldn't catch him, didn't see him for a few days, then... Uh, well, was, their problem was they weren't a cat whisperer, a critter whisperer like you, so... I mean, it's a skill. They needed your expertise. The kitten got spotted again Saturday night. Of course, I wasn't working. And then on Sunday, we had a curbside order that needed to go out, so I took it and I handed it to the driver. And when I turned around, I heard this little... I was like, oh, my God, it's the kitten. And I turned, and I could see him on the backside of a customer's car, like backside of the tire. Those people I took food to probably think I'm a crazy-ass bitch because I dropped down and started crawling across the pavement chasing this damn cat. Did they hear the meow or? I don't know. <laughs> they just thought you were high on meth or probably. something. Probably, <laughs> What is going on with this girl? So I followed him underneath a couple of their cars, and he darted up underneath our food truck, our catering truck. That is where he spent the rest of the evening. I would go out periodically, and I would throw pieces of chicken or pieces of fish. And by the end of the night, there was like six or seven of us out there trying to catch this damn kitten. I was just like, if y'all would just leave, if y'all would just go home, I will get him, I promise. Let me handle this. Let me do this. Scotty 
my brother was like, don't do it. You don't need that. Don't do it. He was trying to be on Jesse's side, but he failed. So I waited until everybody left, and then I pulled my Jeep up back behind the building, and I was letting it run. It w- The kitten wasn't scared of the doors closing or cars coming by, so I let the Jeep run in case I couldn't get him. Then he'd be warmed up, and I would just drive on. I'm surprised he stayed throughout all that. Yeah. But I guess if y'all were feeding him scraps, then yeah. I got a bandana out of my car, and I thought I'd use it as, like, a toy to kind of, like, get him to see if he would chase it, and he he wasn't into that. Then I had a keychain that I was, like, making noise on the ground, and he wasn't into that. He started to lay down, and I could see his eyes starting to close, and I was like, oh, he's got a full belly. He's tired of running. I tried to grab him one time, and he, like, alerted himself, and he went back behind a tire, and I was like, damn it. He never once, like, hissed at you or anything? No, he didn't. I finally just sat down, and he kind of wandered a little bit underneath the car. At one point, he had laid down in front of one of the back tires, and his back was to me, and I slowly and quietly scooted a little bit by a little bit until I knew it was close enough that I could reach him, and I snatched his ass up. And, of course, he was spooked and scared and mad, and so I've got some wounds on my my right arm, but it's worth it. Amy, one of our other servers, had just adopted a kitten a couple weeks ago, so she still had the box from the the shelter. With all the holes in it. Yeah, and so I put him in there, and then I brought him home. And then I let him decompress a little bit. I had stopped and gotten some cat food and stuff, too. He was super chill, though. He never cried once. He never meowed once in that box. He was just hanging out. So after I got ready for bed and everything, I went back upstairs, and he never fought or bit me or hissed at me while I bathed him, and I got all his fleas off. Which weren't that many. When you were holding him, I saw one crawling on his arm. Mm -hmm. I think total 12. I mean, it wasn't many at all. He was more dirty than anything else. Then we went to bed, and I checked on him this morning, and he used his little makeshift box I gave him and eaten his food. I took him to Companion, which is our little, like, neighborhood, low-cost, nonprofit little, like, vet clinic by us. And, of course, they were like, oh, you have another one? Because every time I go, they're like, oh, is that a new baby? I'm like, no, but this time, Dr. Sherry was like, I knew it was coming. I just knew it. So he's all fixed up and got his first shots, dewormer, all that jazz. And about an hour ago, I dropped him off to his new mommy. Which, if she don't take care of him, I will go and take his ass back and burn her house down. (laughs) She ain't lying. So that was good. Yeah, Jesse was not thrilled. And he's like, great. I just said, hey, listen. We can't keep it. We got seven already. Eight is past the limit, but I'm glad I'm glad you were able to find him a home so fast. We'll never get that lucky again. Right. The next time I bring one yeah. home. Well, also we have an update in the Maya Miliete case. Okay. We covered this almost two months ago. We heard through the podcast called "Where in the World Is Crime in San Diego," which Megan loves that name. That on Tuesday, October 3rd at 4 p.m. and at 6 p.m. Pacific time, there will be an interview of Larry Miliete, 
and it'll be aired on NBC San Diego. So hopefully we'll be able to find some place on the line to watch that. Yeah, if not, maybe YouTube after a couple of days will yeah. upload it. No clue what he's going to say there, but we'll see. Megan has a case for us today. You ready to do this thing? I suppose so. My sources today are going to be Deadly Mission, which is an episode from season two. It's number 16 from the show FBI Files, The Morgan Nick Foundation, Dayton Daily News, Murderpedia, GovInfo.gov, which is just some court documents. New York Times, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the ATF.gov, and then case law for some more Mm, documents. Fun. Jesse's favorite thing. Gotta love case law. Two weeks ago, when I told Nona Dirksmeyer's story, I had mentioned in my intro that Nona's murder was the first one that Russellville, Arkansas, had seen in about nine years. I thought I would do that one this time around, only I wasn't really prepared for all the shit that came with it. We never are. I figured that I would be telling you about one family and their tragic deaths, but as I did my research, I realized that it was not going to be quick And easy because they never seem to be. I swear. Hold on to your butts. I'm going to talk about the Mueller family murders. Not Bueller. Mueller with an M. The story won't be complete unless I also talk about the men responsible for it and share some of the other bad things they did. In a way, the death of the Mueller's tied quite a bit of evidence together and ultimately brought these bad men to prison. It was a pleasant Friday morning on June 28, 1996, and I'd read uh, different versions of who was there. The court transcript stated a woman, so I'm going to go with that, but regardless of that detail. A fisherman and his wife, or just a woman, was out fishing near a bridge that went over the Illinois Bayou. And the Illinois Bayou is just north of Dover and Russellville. It runs south from the Ozarks. It is known for its great bass fishing and catching catfish, among other types. It's fairly swampy, so you have to watch out for the locals, so I hear. There are trails to hike, and if you would like to battle Class 2 or Class 3 rapids, you can take your canoes and kayaks out there. Really? The woman had just cast her line, waiting for the fish to start nibbling when she felt a tug. She started to reel in what she thought was a fish, but it ended up being a pair of sneakers tied together. Not just the sneakers alone, though. Sticking out of one of them was a tibia. Shut up. The woman ended up cutting them loose and immediately docked her boat and called 911. Dude, how crazy would that have been? I know. I know. Within hours of that gruesome discovery, the Pope County Sheriff's Department was on scene, taping off large areas around the bayou and dragging large sections 
of the water using these giant metal hooks that went down to the bottom, and then they had divers going throughout as well. By the end of the day that Friday, police had pulled out a trash bag. On the torso of this bag was a large rock duct taped to it. There was also a bag that covered the head, and it too was wrapped in duct tape. To the police, it looked like the body of a young child, a female. The first thought that came to deputies' minds was Morgan Nick. For those who don't know who Morgan Nick is, the night of June 9, 1995, six-year-old Morgan was abducted from a ball field in Alma, Arkansas, which is about an hour from Russellville. She was catching fireflies with some of the other children. She was last seen near her mother's car, emptying emptying sand from her shoes. An unidentified male took her. She's been missing for 28 years now, and it is still an open and ongoing case. Her mother, Colleen Nick, started the Morgan Nick Foundation, which helps parents cope and give them resources to find their lost babies. Our local Amber Alert System is called the Morgan Nick Amber Alert System, or just the Morgan Nick Alert. So I guess there wasn't any other missing children around that area that they could have suspected that was? Not that I know of, or maybe Morgan's was so big, they just hoped that it was her. Okay. It was easy to figure out why they thought this child could have been Morgan. It was just past the one-year anniversary of her kidnapping. The next day, more bags were found, all of which that had large rocks duct taped to them, just like the young girl. As they gathered these bags, it became apparent to the police they had at least two more victims. Could they tell how long they'd been down there? No. Pope County now had three bodies, all found in the Illinois Bayou, all discarded the same way. In each bag, the arms were positioned across the torsos as if they were hugging onto the rocks and then wrapped in the duct tape. But... Sheriff Jay Winters already had a gut feeling of who was in the bags. Months prior, in January 1996, Erlene Branch had entered the Polk County Sheriff's Department to report her daughter and her granddaughter missing. It had been two weeks since she'd heard a peep from them. She told the Sheriff's Department that her daughter Nancy and Sarah, her granddaughter, often accompanied Nancy's husband, Bill Mueller, to these gun shows. Nancy was very good about keeping in contact, keeping her mother updated. As the deputy took a report, he reminded her that Nancy was an adult and has free will. If Sarah was with her, then she wouldn't be considered missing since she was with family. This, no doubtingly, upset Earlene, so much so that she took it upon herself to go to the Mueller residence in Tilly, Arkansas. And Tilly's very small. It is a one-shop kind of town. We used to have a little cabin in Tilly. Well, that's where they lived, in a cabin. It's just northeast of Dover and Russellville and the Illinois Bayou, like an hour's drive. It is just outside the boundaries of the Ozark National Forest. The Mueller family had been living out in a little cabin in the woods, surrounded by nature and all the things that it offered. What if it was the same cabin? Dun-dun. When Nancy's mother arrived, along with Nancy's brother, David, they saw that Bill's Jeep and trailer were gone, but the front door was wide open. Call it a mother's intuition. Earlene just knew something was wrong. Inside the cabin were partially packed bags, but no one was in there. 
She went back to the sheriff's department, and this time, Sheriff Jay Winters listened to her pleas to go investigate. He knew the family well enough, so he took it upon himself to look things over. Earlene just knew Bill had done something to her daughter and her granddaughter. William, or Bill, Frederick Mueller was 52 years old in 1996. He was an electrician by trade. He was also quite the gun enthusiast. Besides being an electrician, he had a gun business. He would go take his family across the U.S. to gun shows. He was always packing, being an army vet, which is, again, another reason he liked guns. He was said to be part of the Patriot Movement, which is a gun rights association. That's the nice way to put it. It wasn't a stretch to think that he followed that lifestyle, like the anti-government, conspiracy theories, white supremacy, sovereign citizens, that, Mm. that kind of life. He wanted less paper money and more assets in silver and gold. He's a prepper too, probably. Probably. Nancy was 28 years old, so about half of Bill's age, and she stayed home with Sarah. She homeschooled Sarah, who was eight at the time. I feel like I can safely assume that with their life choices, the Mueller's probably had crops in a garden, and Nancy stayed home, took care of those, took care of their little homestead they probably had. It wasn't just Bill, though. Nancy was known to be quite conservative herself. The two had met just a few years prior when Nancy started working for Bill, and against her family's wishes, she married him. Following Nancy's divorce to Sarah's father, her parents thought things were moving too quickly and she was rushing into something with a man so much older than her. Truth be told, it was more of what Nancy thought she needed to feel secure and stable. Bill loved the idea of having a family and loved Sarah as his own. Nancy and Sarah soon found a new love and living in the peace and quiet of the woods. There was so much for them to do, places to explore. After time passed and the newness of the marriage wore off some, Bill did tend to show his controlling side more and more, that dominant, militant personality. Erlene often worried about her daughter and granddaughter and that they weren't safe with Bill. With the results from DNA testing, along with the clothing identified and the help of dental records, it was concluded that the three bodies who Sheriff Winters already knew who it probably was ended up being Bill and Nancy Mueller and then Sarah Powell. It was hard enough for Arlene to have been wandering for six months where her daughter and her granddaughter had been. Then she has to find out that they were murdered. And to her surprise, not by Bill, because he, too, had been a victim. Did she have to go identify them? I don't know. I would probably think so. The medical examiner estimated the time of death for each person to be near or close to January 11th, 1996, which was the last day for the Mueller's to have been seen. And they were found in June. The ME couldn't determine whether the three family members were dead before or after being dumped, but it was speculated that each member was suffocated with those bags that had been duct taped around their heads. The ME gathered the evidence and sent it to be analyzed, specifically the duct tape. Under a microscope, it appeared as though there were blue specks stuck in the sticky residue. The FBI was the only place with the updated technology to do further inspection into those strips. 
Now police had to figure out who had done this heinous crime. It was bad enough that the adults went through whatever types of this doings happened prior to the bags being wrapped, but to do it to a child makes it, you know, a thousand times worse. They knew whoever was responsible lacked the moral compass that we all have. Sheriff Winters did have a place to start. Back on February 11th, just a few weeks after Erlene, Nancy's mother, went in to fill out the missing persons report, Bill's white Jeep Cherokee and trailer had been located. And it was odd. A gentleman was out searching his property and there it was. It was back off the highway, hidden behind a brush pile. This property was somewhere halfway between Tilly and Russellville. Pope County Detective Aaron Duvall was given the assignment to go out and take photographs. He ran the plate, and it indeed came back to Bill Mueller. Inside the Jeep was Nancy's purse and her personal belongings. There was an unspoken fear at the time that the Mueller's, or part of the family, was in the trailer. This was the same trailer that Bill took with him to gun shows, and it was always full of his guns, ammo, gun parts, displays. Detective Duvall opened up the trailer and was, he was taken back a little bit. On one hand, he was grateful that when he opened the doors, he did not find the bodies. On the other hand, it was completely empty. There was no guns, no gun parts, no ammo inside. Yeah, whoever stole it cleaned them out. The trailer being empty as if it was raided was not the first time that guns and ammo of Bill Mueller's had gone missing. A year before, in February 1995, Bill and his family were out of town at a gun show. Someone or multiple someones broke into his home and took all his guns and ammo along with silver and gold coins. The estimated value of all the items missing was, was between forty and 50000 Wow. Going back to his mentality and his stance, Bill wasn't trusting of banks, so it was known that he kept things like that at the house. Following that robbery in 95, Bill had told a few of his close friends that he had a suspicion on who had done it. Now we're going to jump back to when the bodies are discovered on June 28, 1996, moving forward from that point. That incident the year prior followed by the discovery of the Jeep in the trailer in February, and now the bodies of the Mueller's being found led to police to suspect that not only was it someone that Bill knew, but had to have been someone that he had met at a gun show. They figured in all three incidences, there's got to be more than one person involved. One of these individuals owned or drove a General Motors model vehicle in the color metallic blue. They know this due to the blue specs results that came back from the FBI. So it's like paint chips from their vehicle? Yes. Okay. Thank you, FBI, for that lab result, or else they would have been stuck. Yeah. Detective Duvall and Sheriff Winters headed to Tilly to go to the Mueller's residence. It had been six months since they were last seen, but as luck would have it, When the landlord came to clear the home, he kept the remainder of the Mueller's belongings in storage after their families had taken sentimental things out of the home. There was no point in calling in forensics after all that time, plus it had been cleaned and now there were new tenants in the cabin. The police's next big break 
and an unknown lead were in one of those boxes that the landlord kept. Inside one of them, there was this photograph of Bill, his family, and a couple friends. But they also found an empty gun case that still had the serial number on it. It was to a Colt 45 revolver, which later they learned was Nancy Mueller's personal handgun. Revolvers are one of the handguns that didn't require registration with the state. The only thing they could do was run it against the national database, the NCIC. At this point in time, though, the ATF had joined their investigation. Agent Glenn Jordan was assigned to the Mueller case. Three reasons ATF was involved. Bill Mueller was once a federal firearms licensee. There were multiple guns missing. And then the murders. Now, the ATF had a complete record on file of Bill's gun inventory prior to him giving up his license. And because from that date forward to the present time, which was like June, July 1996, there was no evidence of any of those guns having been sold, leading the ATF to believe, yes, they were stolen and being stored somewhere. Agent Jordan's first task was to enter in all of Bill's guns into NCIC in case they decide to pop later. He also entered that revolver's cases serial number that Pope County had found. That Colt revolver came back with a hit. It was currently sitting in the evidence room at the Seattle, Washington Police Department. So it was used in another crime afterwards? Not used, but it was found in a different crime. Okay. So from Arkansas to Seattle, we go. Wow. In February 1996, four or five months before the Mueller's were found, a 26-year-old man in Seattle, Washington named Travis Brake was arrested for carrying a firearm without a permit. Really, it was because he walked into this antique shop, high as fuck, carrying the Colt 45. He had been released, and then with this new development involving that same Colt 45, he was arrested again but this time for possession of a stolen firearm. Detective Sonny Davis from Seattle PD, along with Agent Jordan and Detective Duvall, who both flew in, started questioning Travis about this Colt 45, now knowing its importance and the connection back to the Mueller murders in Arkansas. Travis said that he bought the revolver at a gun show there in Seattle he said there were two men at the stand, but could really only remember what one looked like. It stuck with him because Travis said he looked like a hillbilly. Detective Duvall had brought with him that one photograph that was in the box with the revolver case, because you never know. He was listening to Travis describe the man and decided to pull the photo out. Travis Brake pointed to the man standing to the right of Bill Mueller in the picture and said that his name was Keith Collins. Keith had set up a booth the weekend of February 11th, just days before Travis was arrested. Keith Collins and the Mueller's used to be friends by the way of being acquaintances at gun shows. Except for Keith Collins wasn't a real person. He did not exist. Upon further digging, it came out that Keith Collins was actually a man by the name of Kirby Kehoe a.k.a. the patriarch of the Kehoe family. He was a Vietnam veteran who, similar to Mueller, didn't trust or like the government and loved guns. He and his wife Gloria ended up having eight boys, 
and as they grew older, each would go from being in a public school to being homeschooled. Like the government, Kirby and Gloria did not trust the education system. Over time, the Kehoes started to show a liking to the way of the white supremacist thinking, ultimately leading them into being accepted into the Aryan Nation compound in several states. The Kehoe family frequently traveled across the U.S., Florida, Arkansas, North Carolina, Washington, just to name a few states. Once Agent Jordan and Detective Duvall returned to Arkansas, they decided to use that photograph again. It was helpful, so why not? They decided to head back out to Tilly and ask the landlord of the Mueller's to look at this photograph, and they asked him if he recognized any of the men in it. The landlord tapped on the one to the right of Bill and said, well, that's Kirby. Apparently, the Kehoes lived at one time about 40 miles from that Mueller's cabin in Kingston, Arkansas. So he just told the Seattle guy his name was Keith Collins? That's who he knew, That's and that's the name on the receipt holding the spot where they set up their gun show. Okay. Cover story. Gotcha. The Kehoes and the Mueller's knew each other through the gun shows that we know. We also know they have similar interests and lifestyle choices, and for the most part, it was strictly business between Bill and Kirby. Except Bill probably just told him a little too much about his mm-hmm. prepping and guns and family and all that. It was the wives who were a bit closer. While the men worked, the women would go out together with the kids. Gloria was very fond of Sarah because all she had were boys. It didn't take much convincing on Detective Duval's part to consider Kirby Kehoe as a suspect in the Mueller murders. From the beginning, it was thought that whoever did this knew the family. If Kirby Kehoe was part of this Aryan nation, it would make sense. The Mueller's suffered great violence, Sarah included. Detective Duval was ready to buckle down and get started trying to find evidence that showed Kirby was involved when an interesting development came in. December 10th, 1996, it had nearly been a year since the Mueller's murder, and in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, more than 600 miles away, an officer came across this vehicle parked illegally in a handicapped spot. As he pulled up, he's just reading all these white power decals on the back. The officer woke a sleeping man and asked for his name and ID. He said he was Sean Haynes. The next question the officer had to ask because of all the decals on the car was if Sean was armed or if he had any weapons in his vehicle. Sean was complying and he told him, yes, sir, there were. And at the back of the car, he led the officer and showed him that he had several back there. The officer called in the serial numbers to be checked and a Bushmaster rifle, AR-15, hit in the system as stolen. It was registered to Bill Mueller. Sean Haynes was arrested on the spot. When it hit in the NCIC database, the ATF was notified and specifically Agent Jordan. So he and Detective Duvall once again packed their bags and headed north to South Dakota. One of the first questions Detective Duval asked Sean Haynes was, did you kill Bill, Nancy, and Sarah? 
Sean Haynes could have taken that gun directly from the Mueller residence. It's not that far-fetched. He denied it. He wasn't really even sure what that detective was talking about. Sean said that it wasn't his gun in the first place. He had traded another gun that he owned for that rifle six months ago, and Duval asked, with who? Sean says, Chevy Kehoe. One of the eight signs? Mm-hmm. Chevy Kehoe was 23 years old in 1996. He was the oldest of the Kehoe boys. His daddy, Kirby, was a mechanic and liked Chevrolets, hence his name. Probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> him and his mom, or him and Chevy's mom probably got it on in a Chevy, and he was, that's how he Yeah, he's yeah. probably conceived in one, yeah. Yeah. Chevy's mentality followed his father's, but it would seem to become amplified over years. Chevy had dreams of really taking down the government entirely. As he grew older, he would visit several Aryan Nation compounds, learning more and more about their beliefs. He would end up creating his own sect and called it American or the Aryan People's Republic, APR. To help gain more members, he drew attention to himself and his militia group by breaking into homes and robbing them of their possessions, especially if they had any guns. I will inform you more of uh, Chevy Kehoe's shenanigans soon enough. I just want to keep the focus on the information pertaining to the Mueller's first. With this new lead and the information already gathered on the Kehoe family, Detective Duval and the rest of the team are now back home in Arkansas trying to figure out what they're going to do next. They can't see to find any record of the Kehoe family members being in Arkansas still. Now we're moving into 1997. It turned into sort of a waiting game, waiting for a new lead. Maybe another gun will pop. Just when they thought the case was stalling, luck was on their side. But not like entirely. And what I mean by that is on February 15th, 1997 in Wilmington, Ohio, officers saw a glimpse of the type of man Chevy was. So I'm going to back up about a month or so prior to this date right here. Just to give some context, when Sean Haynes was arrested in South Dakota, he called his old roommate, someone who I'm going to introduce in time, but that's just another name to add to the to list so far. Sean told his old roommate about being questioned about the rifle, and this former roommate then informed Chevy of Sean's arrest and the gun hitting in the system. Because of this, Chevy felt it would better to relocate a particular shotgun, one that was Mueller's. He, his wife, and their three kids left Spokane, Washington and drove their RV with their blue Suburban to Yak, Montana, where Kirby and Gloria Kehoe and one of his brothers, Shane, and his family were living. With me so far? Yes. Okay. Over the course of a month to a month and a half's time, Chevy and his family, along with Shane and his family, drove from Old Town, Montana, where Chevy had a storage unit filled of guns and ammo. They fill up the Blue Suburban to sell those items at gun shows in Arizona. 
From Arizona, the two families went to Galveston, Texas. It was here that Chevy confessed to Shane everything that they were selling came from the Mueller's. From Texas, they go through Alabama, Florida, North Carolina, West Virginia, and arrived in Ohio on January 21st, 1997. Good Lord, that Suburban is going to be broke down. Less than a month later, on February 15th, Chevy and Shane were in the blue Suburban when a traffic stop occurred. An officer in Wilmington, Ohio, was just doing his job, and he saw a vehicle with expired tags. And then the men failed to show any identification, which is going back to the days of their father not wanting the government involved at all. He refused to let them have social security numbers. This traffic stop would turn into quite the shootout between officers and the Kehoe brothers. This would also bring the public and the media's attention to the brothers thanks to dash cam footage from the patrol car. Chevy was complying as he exited the vehicle. Shane, not so much. When the officer on the driver's side with Chevy was trying to restrain him, Shane reached for a pistol and opened fire, giving his brother a chance to jump back in the car and escape. Shane then ran into the nearby woods and hid, and he was never found. Chevy ended up in another shootout. Hours later, wounding a bystander, this second shootout, he fired 33 rounds. Again, this second shootout was on dash cams. After that second shootout with police, Chevy ran off on foot and the Ohio police went through the suburban. And inside, they found, among other things, were some curious items like FBI caps federal officer raid jackets, bulletproof vest, guns, gun parts, ammo, holsters, handcuffs, and duct tape. Ohio police informed the FBI of their findings because now there was a threat of domestic terrorism, and of course, they ran the serial numbers of the guns, and there were multiple hits back to Bill Mueller. Since neither man had identification, the Ohio police had to run the registration of the Suburban, and it came back to a man in Spokane, Washington. He was interviewed and said that he had sold his car to Chevy Kehoe. He was in Spokane the day of the shootout. His store did check out. And then Washington police sent his driver's license photo, and Ohio was like, he's not either of the two men we're looking for. Word about this shootout and the guns hitting an NCIC made its way back to Arkansas. Agent Jordan and Detective Duval watched the dash cam footages from both shootings and Duval said, that's Chevy Kehoe. Once again, the two men loaded up and headed out this time to Ohio. The two men go to view and look over the evidence gathered from the Suburban one of the things they pressed to be tested was the blue paint of that Suburban, but sadly it was not a match to the paint sample in the duct tape used to bound the Mueller bodies. Really? Two strikes so far. While the police are sorting through evidence and looking for the brothers, somehow Chevy and Shane get back to their families, they load everyone up, and they leave the area with the help of their parents, Kirby and Gloria. 
Kirby ended up selling Chevy a white 1985 GMC pickup truck. Now, this truck used to be Chevy's before he sold it to his daddy. When he did sell it to Kirby the year before, it had been a different color. And can you guess what that color was? Blue. After getting the truck, Chevy and Shane took their families into Utah, where an older rancher agreed to let the families park their RVs on his property if they would help him. Following the shootouts, losing all the guns, the ammo, it is to say that Chevy Kehoe was frustrated, maybe even just pissed off was too much of an understatement about how he was feeling. He was close to losing his mind, saying things like, I'm going to kill our parents and take all their assets, and then I'm going to raise our younger brothers and turn them into the perfect recruits for the APR, being the Aryan People's Republic. Shane was becoming scared for his life and his family's, so he did the smart thing. In June 1997, he took his family and left in Chevy's GMC pickup truck He made a stop in Yak, Montana to his parents, leaving his family behind. Then he drove into Washington and turned himself in. It was there in Colville, Washington, that a sample was taken from the truck and later matched to the blue paint chips that were embedded in the duct tape from the Mueller's bodies. So now we have the vehicle. Chevy would later be arrested in either Gunlock or Cedar City, Utah, on June 17, 1997, the authorities had contacted that rancher and informed him about Chevy, and the rancher agreed to help the police arrest him. So the rancher had asked Chevy to go into town to the feed store, and the police were waiting for him there. So it was just the two brothers that were involved? Yes. I never read any more about like the little brothers or anything like that, or how old they were. Shane Kehoe cooperated fully. He had been the one who told the police who the killers of the Mueller's were. Back when he and Chevy were in Galveston preparing for the gun show, right after Chevy had confessed the guns were from the Mueller's, Chevy had also told Shane that he and Danny Lee had done it. Chevy gave Shane details that only the murderer would have known, He also told Shane that he and Danny were dressed up like federal agents, all that gear discovered by the Ohio police. Who's Danny? About to tell you. Okay. (laughs) Danny is Daniel Lewis Lee, the former roommate of Sean Haynes, the man arrested in South Dakota. Danny is just another skinhead thug, not too bright. Back before the Mueller's murders, Chevy and Danny left Washington State and told everyone they were headed to Ohio to build this barn, but instead they left to go see Kirby and Gloria in Arizona. I've been everywhere, man. I'm telling you, they are nonstop nomads. After the visit to the Kehos in Arizona, Chevy and Danny go to Oklahoma so Danny can visit his sick mother. That was the excuse they told everyone why Danny was with Chevy, because Danny couldn't afford to drive himself across 
the damn U.S. to see his mom. Unknown to everyone, that was a very short visit. Yes, he did see his mother, but it was more of a cover. Because from there, they go to Tilly, to the Mueller's. Their main motive was greed. The men waited in the cabin, decked out in that federal gear, waiting for the Mueller's to return home. It took both Chevy and Danny to subdue Bill. They suffocate the family with the plastic bags and then secure them with the duct tape. Danny couldn't bring himself to hurt Sarah, so Chevy killed Sarah. The two men then loaded the Mueller's in the back of Chevy's 1985 GMC pickup, Lou at the time. Chevy had bought it from Kirby, and then after the murders, he had it painted white and sold it back to his dad. Danny and Chevy ended up dumping the bodies in the Illinois Bayou. They attached those large rocks to them. Then the men went back, and they took cash, coins, guns, parts, ammo, gun cases, everything they could fit in the truck bed. Then they drove all the way back to Spokane, Washington, and stowed the items. Chevy's mother, Gloria, stumbled upon the collection in storage at a Shadows Motel. That's the name of this place. And when she asked about it, Chevy told her that he put Bill and Nancy on a liquid diet. What does that mean? He put them in the water. Oh, okay. Chevy also told his mother about what he and Danny did. This would end up becoming a big deal in court. Gloria, in early March 1998, went to the ATF and told them that she was scared for her life, scared of her husband because she knew too much. She led the ATF to the Kehoe storage units where there was an ungodly amount of weaponry, including an AK-47 registered to Nancy Mueller. In other units were some more items like gun display cases, which had Danny's and Chevy's fingerprints on them. Shane Kehoe was given 24 years for felony assault for shooting at Ohio officers with stolen weapons. It was dropped to 11 years and he was released in 2008. Because he testified against his brother? He did end up doing that, yes. He thought he would get leniency because he told them everything, you know. Chevy pled guilty to attempted murder, felony assault, and carrying a concealed weapon for the Ohio incident. He was convicted in federal court for the murders of the Mueller's, given three life sentences without the possibility of parole. Shane would end up being arrested again with his father, Kirby, in 2013 during an ATF raid of one of their off-grid compounds. Shane was released in 2016. Kirby was released in 2022. Daniel Lewis Lee was given the death penalty for his involvement, and he died from lethal injection. It's not quite it for today. I'd said that the Mueller's and the Kehoe's were friendly acquaintances through gun shows. This was how the Kehoe's first knew about how well Bill did. It would come out later that the first robbery on the Mueller's during February 1995 was done by Kirby and Chevy Kehoe. Really? And I hope that wasn't a shocker, but it sounded like it was. 
Chevy in February of 1995 stole a trailer near Harrison, Arkansas. Then he drove it to the Kehoe's place in Kingston, Arkansas. Tilly and Kingston are like an hour's drive apart, a couple hours. On February 12th, while the Mueller's were gone, Chevy and Kirby helped themselves to whatever they could find. If you remember, I said Bill told his close friends that he suspected he knew who robbed him. Months later in June of 1995, Kirby and Chevy were involved with another crime, which was kidnapping and robbery of a couple in Colville, Washington. Which is why, again, how did he not end up with the death penalty with all this other right. shit? This case wasn't in Russellville, like Nona's, but it was the same vicinity, and it also involved Pope County. From what I can tell, Russellville PD had a small part, like a side gig, like a side investigation. A man named Paul Humphrey was arrested and later pled guilty to the possession of a firearm by an unlawful user of a controlled substance, possession of an unregistered firearm, and possession of marijuana. How was he involved, you ask? Attention was put on him after the discovery of Bill Mueller's Jeep. On February 22nd, 11 days after the Jeep's discovery, Nancy's brother David said that Paul Humphrey had the title documents for the Jeep and the trailer, which was odd because Nancy's brother had seen those documents unsigned in the Mueller residence on a previous visit. Sheriff Winters asked Paul to produce the documents, and he failed to do so. So July of 96, after the bodies were found, the Russellville police went to Paul Humphrey's house and saw a 45 in his waistband. Paul handed over these documents, and they had a signature by Bill Mueller, but no mailing envelope. A handwriting analysis would later prove that the signature was forged. This led the police to search Paul Humphrey's house, looking for clues for the Mueller murders, but instead they found drugs and guns. So he was their first initial suspect, because how else did he get the Jeep and the trailer? But it was more than likely that he also knew the Kehoe's and was able to get the titles from them. Right. He was probably a skinhead, too, and probably traded guns for the Jeep or something. Something like that, right. Dang. So they robbed him the first time for 40000 to $50,000 yes. worth of guns, and then a second time? And then The killed. first time Kirby was involved? First time was Kirby and Chevy. Second time was Chevy and his dumb skinhead buddy Danny, and they would end up killing them. Here is the quote-unquote fun stuff. Involving the Kehoes. Around the early 1990s, there was this family who left Utah and moved to Colville, Washington, and started to attend a militia and white supremacist-based church group called The Ark. This is where Chevy and Shane Kehoe befriended the one and only Israel Keys. No shit. You all know who I am talking about, I'm sure. If you don't, you need to go read American Predator... The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century by Maureen Callahan, or just go Google the man. The book is great, though. Second thing. 
sometime in or around 1995, probably around the time that Chevy and Kirby first robbed the Mueller's, the former manager of the Shadows Motel in Spokane, Washington, said that a man who resembled Timothy McFay met with Chevy Kehoe at the motel. The same manager also said that Chevy, on April 19, 1995, arrived early to the bar and asked for the TV to be turned to CNN. Hours later, the Oklahoma City bombings happened. The manager knew that Chevy had to have had known advanced knowledge of McVeigh's plan. Probably sold him whatever he used. The FBI could never confirm this sighting. It wouldn't be surprised if the two knew each other. They both had similar interest in the anti-government movements, gun shows, militia groups. McVeigh's bombing was done out of revenge because of the actions that the federal government took at Ruby Ridge and Waco. McVeigh was once quoted saying, when guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw. And that is the story of the Mueller family murders and how solving them led to a whole load of shit with the Kehoe family. I told you if I need to do like a like a name list, checklist, date list or something, I can I can run back through it with you. I've been everywhere, man, across the desert land. Man. I would look at like one link and then it would be like, oh, they were in this state. And I was like, God, and I, oh, God, oh, ah. <laughs> I would have been like the hell with this case. I'm going <laughs> to try something else. We're just going to walk in circles now, folks. I told you it was like all over the place. I was looking up the Mueller murders. I was like, okay, okay. And I'm like, well, hey, okay, the Kehoe's. I was like, I feel like I know that name. I've heard it before. And I clicked and I was like, damn. So there was a little bit of back and forth because I wanted to like include some of the things about them. I was able to follow along okay. just fine. It was just the Sean and Shane that had my mind screwed well, up. Well, that was my fault because Sean is spelled a shitty way. Oh, well, how's it spelled? With an H. So I was thinking Shane in my head. Oh, instead of S. E-A-N. Yeah, I was like, oh. I saw it spelled several different ways, so I just went with the one that I oh, saw. I would always spell it with an H, though. Like S-H-A-W-N? Yeah. 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 It's like, ugh. That's it for today's episode. Thank God. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with some more true crime. If you've got any recommendations for us, let us know, and we'll add them to the list. They could be cases you find interesting or cases about people you hold near and dear to your heart. And we'll do our best to cover them. Mowgli. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Caught Red Podcast. And until next time, stay local, shop local. Murder local. <laughs>